no confidence in the flesh. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the cir circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecu persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them a garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is true faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of, this, of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. We've been in the uh, book of Philippians for a wee while now. We're, we're learning that Paul... Well, Paul was an educated man. Paul would have letters after his name, probably more after his name than in his name. He was one of those sorts of people. And if you've read books um, that don't just have pictures in, don't mean that unkindly, but if you, if you read uh, educational books, professional sort of books, sometimes they have more um, footnotes on a page than they do in the text of the periodical itself, if you know what I mean. There was someone in our home that's learning in Google Docs how to put footnotes and endnotes in a document. And the older you get, you begin to experience that there is a hidden world. Sometimes you wish it was hidden all the time. There's a hidden world of scholarly publications and educational rigor. And when you get into that sort of world, not just at Cambridge or Oxford, but those sort of places or the uh, London School of Economics, that sort of establishment, it's a place of rigor and scholarship and quality, and people pride themselves on it. Now, Paul was that sort of person. If you're the, one of those sort of people, a man or woman that's into scholarly publication, you take yourself seriously because you're a scholar. You're someone who speaks in the academy. You're someone that uses long words when shorter words will suffice. And that means that you are someone who ex just takes extreme care about what you say and how you say it. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 
and verse 8 to me. Because Paul was that sort of person. He was someone who's very comfortable in what's known as the academy. He was a scholar. So then verse 7 and verse 8 of Philippians chapter 3 and even verse 9 are very, very surprising. He says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I consider them, what he's been speaking about in verse 3, 4, 5, as rubbish, as trash. Now, I've wrestled with this because the original word is something that's very descriptive. Boys and girls, if I was to say it, teenagers, should I say, if I was to say it, it would be a word that you're familiar with, sadly, from the school playground. It's a word that you're familiar with for something that you can step in on the base of your shoe. That's the strength of the word that Paul is saying in this chapter of the Bible. Yes, the Bible. He's saying, I, I see the preciousness, the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as my King, my Lord, and my Savior. And because he is so great, everything that I've treasured all my life is trash. It's garbage. It's stuff you would put your shoe in and wish you hadn't done. That's the strength of feeling that Paul has about the beauty, the magnificent, the glory, the worth, the treasure that is Jesus Christ and everything else that he's been living his life for. Everything else that I've been living my life for everything else that has given me treasure and worth and significance and approval that I've been passionate about all my life is now trash. It's worthless. It's garbage. It's insert strong word here in comparison with Jesus Christ. Now that's what he says. I've got my degree from Cambridge and then I got a master's from Oxford. And then I got a PhD from the London School of Economics. And they're there on the wall in my parents' home, because that's what parents always do. They put them up the stairs. And he says, if I was at home with them, I would rip them up. They're trash to me. Because verse 8, I have found, notice this phrase, verse 8, the surpassing greatness. All this stuff and the, uh, the affection that other people gave me. What I was passionate about, I now see it in a new light because I've seen the surpassing greatness. And what's that? It's a bit like this. If you uh, go out to somewhere like the middle of Ireland, you go up to the Peak District where there is not one lux of light pollution. You see the beauty of the Milky Way in a way that you cannot see it with the glory of Surrey surrounding it with light pollution just ruining the night sky and ruining your eyes. You can go somewhere like the South Island of New Zealand. It's watching a documentary. Griff Rhys Jones is on this hammock and he's looking up and you see the majesty of the heavens. But you can't see them because at daytime, the stars are still there, of course, but then the sun comes out. And when the sun comes out, you can't see the stars anymore, but they're still there. Paul says, I used to gain reflected glory like the stars received from the sun because of what I did in my life, verse 3, 4, 5. But then, verse 8, a new sun, S-O-N, has arisen on the horizon and now I see everything in my past through new eyes. Now, what has he seen? Verse 9, what would make him say such a statement? That's trash, 
surpassing greatness, greatness. Verse 9, this is what it's all about. To be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness from God apart from the law. Now that's quite a gift in that sentence and that takes some unwrapping. So here are three things. This passage is about righteousness. Righteousness is our greatest need. Righteousness at the same time is our greatest problem. Righteousness at the same time is our greatest gift that you can receive from God. Okay? The greatest need, greatest problem, greatest gift you can receive. Let's get into it. Righteousness is our greatest need. When people think of righteousness, we think uh, of goodness. I just need to turn up the goodness to the max. It's about being a good person, about living a good life. That's not what Paul is saying from verse 4, 5, and 6. Let me show you. In verse 4, 5, and 6, we have Paul's spiritual CV. It's some time ago that I applied for a job, but you have to put a CV together, a curriculum vitae. You put together a resume. You say, this is why I should be let in to this post. This is everything I'm going to boast about. This is the qualifications that I have. I'm not going to tell you what some shady stuff in my life. I'll just kind of airbrush that out. I'll delete, delete, delete. But I will show you my best foot forward. And this is why you should let me in to this job or you should let me in to this institution because I think I am strong enough and well-educated enough and I've done enough. Verse 4, 5, 6, Paul puts together a cracking CV circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, well, I was faultless. Now, what does he mean? Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, I want to tell you, as you read my CV, I did not convert to Judaism. I've been a Jew from the beginning. Of the tribe of Benjamin, what does that mean? Well, that means I am a pure blood. Not Harry Potter speak, but I'm one of the two tribes of Israel that were pure from the house of David. It's racial purity. Hebrew of Hebrews. I didn't become a Jew and I was a Greek underneath. I'm a true Hebrew. I'm a true Jew. I'm culturally pure. I'm racially pure. Pharisee, this is talking about his uh, educational attainments. I can get my ducks in a row. I had the right robes to wear. I spoke clearly because I sat under a good teacher called Gamaliel. Verse 6, and I was faultless in my righteousness. I was faultless. I was an activist. I, I promoted the movement. And you can read the book of Acts to the degree that Paul did that. So you put all of that together and Paul says... If you want to boast, let's boast. Here's my CV. People only put a CV together when they want to get into somewhere, a job, an educational establishment, and so on. It's an argument of merit, your CV. It's an argument that displays your attributes and what you are proud about, what you're proud for. As someone has said in a book called Seculosity, his name is David Zahl, it shows your reason for enoughness which can be a synonym for uh, righteousness. In other words, it shows you your CV, what you rely upon, not just for hope, but for a source of significance. Now, here's a quote for you. Listen to the words of David Zahl from his book, Seculosity. He says, The search for enoughness or righteousness is a journey we all face. 
Listen carefully and you'll hear it everywhere. People long to be successful enough. They long to be happy enough. They long to be thin enough. They long to be wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, good enough. All of us have a benchmark in our minds that if only we could reach, then we would be valued and vindicated and loved. That if we got enough, we would be enough. But the trouble is, no matter how much we earn or achieve, it's never quite enough. So we spend our lives chasing a mirage. I need to be enough. I need you to approve of me because I have a standard that nowhere else can meet. But the trouble is just with the language of enoughness. It gives the impression, doesn't it, that there's a benchmark often that we make ourselves or the culture puts upon us and we can never quite reach it. It's like a carrot on a stick in front of a donkey on Blackpool Sands. It's just, just beyond our reach. Verse 3 and 4, Paul says, Let me show you where my confidence is. It's in my CV, verse 5, 6 and 7. I could look inside myself. But actually, here's the place where my confidence used to lay. We, we have an obsession with righteousness, says a man called Jonathan Haidt. It's the normal human condition. So whether you call it righteousness, which is a religious sort of word of a right standing before God, or whether you call it enoughness, which is a synonym that's helpful to understand what righteousness means outside of a Christian faith. But either way, righteousness is the most profound need that we all face. And it can be received or we can try and accrue it ourselves. All of us will be living up to something. All of us will be seeking to gain a sense of approval and significance and joy and standing with some matrix. It could be our family. I just want to be known as a good parent until you meet my kids. Speaking of other people, not myself. But when you're doing well, it's great. But when you're doing badly, oh boy, when one of your kids kind of hits the skids, you're in deep trouble. It could be your figure. It could be your family. It could be your bank balance. We all have a source of enoughness that outside of Jesus will always crush you. But it reveals a deep need that we have for righteousness, that we seek to earn approval, earn acceptance, earn significance it's there right from the beginning of the bible of course our first parents they were seeking to gain their own righteousness but they failed and so they hid they covered up their their need of enoughness they were naked and they were afraid this is why you should accept me and then they hid we say that to god we say it to the world we try and prove it to ourselves because righteousness is our most fundamental need It's also our greatest problem, secondly. Righteousness is our greatest problem. Look at what Paul says here, what what he reveals in these verses. Paul says here the thing that made him a Christian was not that he changed his attitude towards his sins. He knew they were wrong. What made Paul a Christian here was that he repented of his sins, but also he repented, he said sorry to God for his righteous deeds. And you need to do both to become a Christian. You need to apologize to God. You need to turn away from your sins, what you've done against God, but also whatever you were trusting in as a substitute God. Verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. 
Paul completely reoriented himself in relation to his good deeds. What he says in his spiritual CV, verse 5 and into verse 6, they're not, they're not wrong in and of themselves. They are good things, but they, they were his source of confidence. They were his source of righteousness and significance. And so when he became a Christian, he apologized. He said, sorry, he repented of his sins, but also he repented of what he trusted in himself. You see, Christianity is not an add-on. It's not something you kind of add on to reach one of your life goals on your bucket list. Religious insurance, check. Becoming a Christian means you completely reorient your whole life around the person of Jesus Christ. His aims become your aims. His righteousness given to you by faith becomes your righteousness. The approval that he has won before his father is given to you as a gift by faith. It's an utterly new way of looking at yourself and everything about yourself. It's, it's radical reorientation, not an add-on, not a bolt-on, not an update. It's a new beginning. It's a new heart. It's a new orientation. It's complete redirection. Rather than going your own way, seeking your own source of confidence, it's now received in the person of Jesus Christ. But all of us are recovering control freaks. You're looking at one standing in front of you this morning. And we get very, very creative about how we can maintain control and autonomy over our lives. Here are two. We can say, well, I don't know if there's a God, so I'm going to hedge my bets. I don't know if the Bible is true, so I'm going to go on living my life as if he does not exist. There's not enough evidence from me. He'll cramp my freedom. I'll keep living my own way. That's one way you can do it. Irreligious. You can just keep control of your life, pretending that God doesn't exist and having your best life right now. Then there's another way, just as dangerous. No, no, no. I think God may exist, so I'm going to follow his rules. I'm going to try and keep his standards. I'm going to be very, very religious. And my best aim is to please him by being better than other people. Two ways to keep control over your life, both equally damaging, both equally dangerous. And if you live a very religious life, you can tell it quite easily. You'll get hot under the collar when God does not do what you want him to do. Because surely for living such a good life, he owes you and he owes you bad. And so you become angry when life does not go your way and you don't get what you deserve. But both ways, treating God like he doesn't exist, treating God like he owes you because you've lived a good life, are ways of you to keep autonomy and a way to save yourself and keep Jesus far away from your heart Paul is showing us here in verse 7 someone becomes a Christian when they not only repent of their sins they also repent of their righteousness and their righteous deeds what makes you a Christian is to say I now see even my good deeds were done for the wrong reasons even my good deeds were done to try and earn your favor I was trying to be my own savior I was trying to make my resume great for you. I was trying to make my CV impressive towards you. Look at verse 7. I had to count it all as loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. I had to look at it in a new way. I saw it for what it was. It wasn't a, a thank offering to God. Actually, it was about me and trying to gain other people's acceptance and approval and righteousness. 
There was an almost illiterate man, I've mentioned him before, but I can't find a better example, called Nathan Cole. He uh, received a ministry. He, he heard the gospel explained by um, an old uh, preacher called George Whitfield. It's an open-air uh, ministry back in the 18th century. And in 1741, he wrote how he became a Christian. And he said this, My hearing, Whitfield, my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. And by God's grace, my old foundation was broken up and I saw my righteousness could not save me. That's the day he became a Christian. He'd been religious for years, but he was seeking to build his own foundation. And then God used George Whitfield mightily and it changed his life. He didn't just say sorry for his sins to God. He also said sorry for his righteous deeds. And on that day, he became a Christian because righteousness is our greatest need. Self-righteousness is our greatest problem. God's righteousness is our greatest gift. Let's think about that as we close. Here's what Paul says, verse 9. There's one thing I want you to remember, says the great apostle. This is what it means to be a Christian in one verse, to be found in him, to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. It's not something that I do, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And so a Christian is someone who recognizes that God gives you a perfect CV, a perfect resume, a perfect list of accomplishments because Jesus Christ lived the perfect life died a once and for all death and by faith offers to anyone who would receive it his righteous record. No proving needed to be done, no effort, but by faith it's an identity and a righteousness that's received. Now this is not product placement, but I am told, because I don't use it, because I think it's horrible, that on Instagram there's something called filters. And on Instagram you can take a photo and it teaches you how to take a photo. I think it's at 45 degrees. Rather than someone holding the back of your neck to uh, reduce sign of wrinkling, if you just put your chin up and put your camera up like that, or even better, you use uh, one of those selfie sticks, you can get the perfect photo. If you notice people up at the downs, they're always taking photos like that because it's all about them, not the beauty of the world around them, and so on. I do have a slight opinion on Instagram, you may have guessed. But apparently there is a filter on Instagram that gets rid of imperfection and flaws. It takes longer for some people than others is a gag that you could make. But it enables you to take the perfect headshot and then you can get other things that come in. I'm looking for young people for affirmation and understanding. There's other things that you can put in and you can make yourself kind of look how you want. Get rid of imperfections, make yourself look thinner, 10 years younger, all by holding a camera at a certain angle and pressing a button to say, hey, give me bunny ears make me look younger, whatever it may be. Paul does not say that God's righteousness is a filter. God doesn't look at us through a filter and if some of our goodness still gets through and a bit of Christ's righteousness is all we need. It's not abstract. Look at what he says, verse 9. I want to be found in him. God finds me by faith in his son. This is not a filter this is a complete surrounding and protection. This is like a place of security in a storm where you run into a house. 
He discovers me in Christ, not by myself. We sang a song this morning, Holy, Holy, Holy. Lift up his name. God's absolute holiness is a fearful and a terrifying thing. That we in our self-righteousness think we can stand up before God with our own self-merit. That's a foolish and a fearful thing. But in Christ, we are completely surrounded by the righteousness of his son, Jesus. And so God looks at us and sees nothing of us and all of his son's perfect righteousness. And we are eternally safe and secure. It's the beauty of the gospel. God sees me in Christ. He discovers me in Christ. He sees me as beautiful because he sees the beauty of his son surrounding me. Like a father or a mother holding the child's hand. We are beautiful in him. We are accepted in him. We are adopted through him. We are loved because of him. God looks at you and you're not filtered. God looks at you and you're an object of beauty because of Christ's beauty. And that is the truth and qualification that's more important than any CV we can live to accrue. And do you know why? Because the Bible describes it as a breastplate of righteousness. In Ephesians chapter 6, there's this image of spiritual warfare, the, the righteous armor of God as the servant of God, Jesus Christ. And from the Old Testament, Paul drags all that into the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 6, he says, By faith you wear the armor of King Jesus. You stand in his strength, not your own. He died the death you should have died. He lived the life you should have lived. And now you are dead in him and you are raised with him and you're seated next to him all because of Jesus's finished work except me not because of what I have done but because of what he has done at that moment you do that by faith at the moment you uh, repent of your sin you turn away from it and you repent of your righteousness and you turn to trust God's uh, sufficiency of his son's sacrifice you are in him eternally you're next to him there's nothing more you need to do rather than (laughs) repent of your sin and trust Jesus it sounds so foolish but it's the only way that we can be rescued Jesus Christ is like a breastplate his righteousness his standing it's like a bulletproof vest to protect us you can take anything now so what if your friends tease you in year seven so what if your work colleague uh, usurps your authority so what if your husband or wife says something unkind to you that wounds you deeply christ looks upon you and loves you god adores you because he adores his son and your sins have been forgiven god the holy spirit is in you There's nothing else you need. You're in him. And so if Jesus Christ is your real righteousness by faith, if you're found in him, the world can do what it wants to you because you're eternally safe and secure. David says in Psalm 37, My feet stumbled, I almost slipped, but I didn't fall because God had hold of me. I don't presume to stand in the presence of almighty God by my own righteousness which is our greatest need my own enoughness is so insufficient it's a joke but in Christ God looks at me and loves me and accepts me and approves of me this is the hyper thing this is the surpassing greatness verse 8 that I have found 
You can take everything that I've done. I went to all the right colleges. I had the right upbringing. I had the right ethnicity. You can take it all and it's trash. But knowing Christ, that's the greatest thing I've ever known and will ever know. Is Jesus your example? Is Jesus your hero? Is Jesus your model that you're trying to follow? Or is Jesus your saviour? Verse 10. I want to know Christ. Let's pray.